Hello and welcome to our podcast channel, What Matters? Conversations Exploring Psychosynthesis in the World. This is Susan Jukes-Allen, founder of Synthesis Center San Francisco. Join us, along with our hosts, Craig Behenna and Christina Gustafson, in conversation with psychosynthesis practitioners in the fields of coaching, health and healing, business, spirituality, education, and the arts. Conversations to inform, inspire, and ignite your call of self. We are so excited to have Dee Dee Furman here with us today to talk about her ex- her very deep experience and lengthy experience with psychology, psychosynthesis, the transpersonal. Dee Dee, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and lovely to be with you too. So let's just dive right in, Didi. If you could share with us about how you discovered psychology and psychosynthesis. Well, let me back it up a little bit and tell you how I discovered the transpersonal. Okay. Because it's more interesting and fun. Um, As a 12, 13-year-old, I decided I had to go to Europe. I didn't know why. And I kept telling my parents I had to go to Europe. And I went to the travel agency when they used to have those and would get the brochures and put them up in my room. And my parents made it happen so that I went to Switzerland for a summer alone, stayed with the family there. They spent their summer vacation in the Alps. And so I ended up in the Alps with this family. And in the Alps, I discovered some experience of divinity, the transpersonal. Uh, A lot of the trip was difficult. Nobody in the family spoke English except the 10-year-old boy. I learned a lot, but that's what happened. I can remember being outside in those mountains and just feeling the um, the power of something greater than I was that was non-religious, not like whatever my family of origins religious orientation was. And to my everlasting gratitude, I ended up before the pandemic last year back in the Alps, visiting with psychosynthesis friends who live um, on the Italian side of those same Alps. And so it felt like a full circle of finding the transpersonal. I found psychosynthesis, I would say I found psychosynthesis before I found psychology, um, through my cousin John Furman, whose books um, are the only really academic books. His books with Anne Gila, his wife, uh, SUNY Press. He was doing workshops around the country and he was doing one at, you know, in the 70s at one of the human potential growth centers that happened to be in the town I lived in. He came, he stayed with us. I asked him what psychosynthesis was. 
did a guided imagery with me on a, a recurring dream I had been having. And um, that was it. I was bit by that bug and never left. I went to his workshops with him and then started training with Martha Crampton and never looked back. And so that was in probably 74 oh, of the last century. And how cosmic that you discovered your connection to the transpersonal and the Alps and the birthplace of Carl Jung. Yes. Yeah. It yes. really was very instrumental in bringing the transpersonal to the world. Mm. Yes, uh, among, among a number of people. And uh, he and Asa Jolie had some contact as well as the other big transpersonalists. Asa Jolie was on the board of editors of the Journal for Transpersonal Psychology. And one of his articles was published in the very first one. So he was right there at the forefront of transpersonal psychology. Yeah. And so it sounds like for you, you really discovered psychosynthesis at a, and your connection to the transpersonal at an early age. And so was it... Uh, an easy move for you to go through your education and to college and, and uh, choose to study? Um, yep, it was easy, but it wasn't, it wasn't as directly oriented. I was at that time in a BA program and I, in, you know, some hippie BA program out of Goddard where it was a low residency program. I, I always, took the hippie route. Um, <laughs> and so I just flipped my next course of study into psychosynthesis and um, other things related to that, including motherhood and matriarchal consciousness. And so my BA went that way and it ended up being that I just got a degree for every child I had. I would get pregnant and I would start a degree. So luckily I had a third kid to get my doctorate. It worked out perfectly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and your children just absorbed that knowledge, I'm sure. Oh, well, you probably don't want to go there. <laughs> Through osmosis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I would imagine, because in the United States, unlike Italy, uh, France, and the UK, psychosynthesis is not seen as a field of study here under the umbrella of psychology. Is that, I feel like that's what I've seen when I look into psychology programs. I've never seen a psychosynthesis focus. Um, you're right. And I'm holding back my inclination to rant. Uh, <laughs> though, when I was getting my doctorate, there was a man, a professor there, Dr. Jack Weidman, who was trained by Tom Yeomans, who was teaching a course in psychosynthesis. I was already well-trained by then, but that existed. And um, you're right, there isn't, there won't be an easy path for psychosynthesis in the United States because psychology is owned by the American Medical Association, the American Psycho Psychology Association and the pharmaceutical companies. 
that's why I moved psychosynthesis out of the psychotherapy orientation into a coaching orientation right. in our work, my work. Mm. Can I jump in to take, to take that question slightly elsewhere then? Because I was actually, before we, before we did this interview, I was having a, a read of an article you wrote for the American Councils Association, Didi, and you were talking about the um, importance for counselors to have a working knowledge of the transpersonal and obviously psychosynthesis specifically for you. And I wonder for people who are, a lot of people will have an idea of who you are from the psychosynthesis world who are watching or listening to this, but anybody who's come on to this uh, viewing it or listening to it from the point of view of being interested as a counselor or being interested in counseling, what does that look like and what's the experience of having a transpersonal outlook as a counselor in your experience in your definition of it well let me tell you a little bit more about um my education and this one you'll like particularly craig my my doctoral dissertation was called if you meet the buddha on the road invite him into your session <laughs> <laughs> And it was, uh, it was research into the transpersonal as practiced by people, practitioners, psychiatrists, I interviewed psychiatrists, psychotherapists, etc. One of the most interesting things, and I won't get the, the numbers right now, but very recently before I did that, there had been a study by the American Family Therapist Association very large study, like a thousand people. And they asked the question, do you use spiritual practices or spirituality in your sessions? And a very high percentage said yes. And then the next question they asked, I mean, there were lots of questions, but these were the ones I focused on. The next question was, do you talk about spirituality with your supervisor? And the numbers dropped precipitously. And the third question that related to this was, have you had any training in this? And the numbers dropped even more precipitously. Mm. At the same time, what we know uh, from that period is that 90% of the people in the United States believe in some kind of higher power. So the disconnect is pretty uh, amazing. And, and yet I've given you the reasons that I think that that continues to be the case. Um, so I think more people are doing transpersonal psychology than would, um, would cop to it or necessarily put it on their sites. Uh, and mm. the experience of working with the transpersonal is as, as simple as getting to know your client. Because if a huge percentage of the people who walk into your office have a spiritual belief system of their own. How can we not engage them with that? And how can we not engage them, which is one of the things that Acid Jolie made so profoundly clear. How can we not engage them with that as much as we engage them with their family of origin, trauma, memories, whatever. Thus, the egg diagram and the idea that we have both a lower unconscious and a higher unconscious. So 
it's not a big yank. It's not having to learn how to teach meditation or do anything other than say, hi, who are you? And keep asking that question until we find out where spirituality exists in that person and being willing to go with openness and curiosity to that in the same way that we do when they talk about the problems they're having in their life and their history. Mm. That's interesting. What I wonder then what, what that means for, sorry, this is a, this is just something that I think is super helpful for people who are sitting in the councils or the coaches chair, because we're talking about how to bring this into the world and we bring that into the world through the people we're talking to. What kind of preparation would a counselor need to have that conversation? Because it sounds as though, I don't know, some of us, some of us find that we have to do a certain amount of unraveling of spiritual things that have been taught or enforced onto us in terms of ideas or of practices. Well, that, that is true. If we come in to our role and we have a very rigid view of spirituality or we have a strong religious orientation, then we're going to have trouble if, you know, with anybody who's not playing in those boundaries. But the same thing is true for us in terms of the personal level mm -hmm. and the unconscious, the lower unconscious. If, you know, I think all fathers are mean because my father was mean, who, by the way, sorry, daddy, was absolutely wonderful and lovely and was not mean. But if I think that way, then I'm going to look at you, the client, and I'm always going to be unconsciously biasing towards finding out where your father issues are, or I'm going to be unconsciously biasing towards whatever is my unconscious bias. So we need to get conscious. We need to really look at what is spirituality as opposed to religion. It is, again, one of the reasons that Asa Jolie so completely determined that he would keep his own personal spiritual and religious life separate from his psychology. Because, and he says this, uh, psychosynthesis will take you to the doors of the great mystery, but it will not get you through and that's what he wanted. And that's what we as practitioners need to be able to do. All three of us going through the doors of the great mystery will look very, very different. You can't do it my way. I can't do it your way. And so what we can do for each other, for our clients, for ourselves, is clear away the debris that makes it hard to get to the doors of the great mystery. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, I, I made a note under the things that I just asked you that was about how do we combine this spiritual awareness, awareness of higher self experiences, peak experiences with, you know, what we're, what we're seeing now are kind of the urgent needs of people in society. And we're kind of, what your answer kind of tells us, it's not actually that different. All of these things need to be taken together, which is the benefit of the the egg diagram, the psychosynthesis perspective of a, a full experience of the conscious and subconscious and unconscious at different levels. Yes, it, sh it shouldn't be that different if, um, mm. if, if we didn't, and here's a, another psychosynthesis concept you both know well, if we didn't narrow our identifications into something, 
which is contraindicated as a way to spirituality. So by the time we're at the top of that mountain, whether we, you know, got there by taking acid or meditating or in religious ceremonies or being a 15-year-old in the Alps, mm. by the time we're there, our identities are expanded. And when we have expanded identities, then we're less likely to polarize. We're less likely to make other people bad. We're more likely to uh, behave in a way that supports the larger whole. This mm. quote from Asajoli, this may be a good, a good place for it. Um, these are from his archives, so it's not in, in any book that I know of. The soul of a nation manifests itself in three ways. Great individuals, collective manifestations, and the steady influence of its best citizens. So that invites us both to the collective and to the personal responsibility, because am I going to be one of its best citizens or am I not? I mean, that's really the act of will. Do mm. I, how, do I, how do I decide what being a best citizen is and how to do it? Mm. That's my question, too. How does that get defined? Who, who gets to define what best citizen equals? Nobody gets to define it. Uh, the, 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 the continuation of his quote, and it doesn't answer your question at all. It just leaves it hanging in midair. <laughs> a sense of responsibility towards others right. becomes a conscious urge to serve into consecration the active will to good, the apex of which is heroism and utter sacrifice, all based in love. Uh. If I had to define um, for myself, or if somebody asked me how I would know whether my, let's say, political or social actions were for the good or not good, I would go back to am I operating out of love or am I operating out of hate or anger or fear mm. or fear? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think a lot of us um, have been experiencing for good reason. There is a bear in the woods. Yeah, absolutely. The question is who's the bear? <laughs> <laughs> At least that seems to be a question a lot of people are asking right now. And it sounds like if we are able to really connect into our sense of service to the whole, to the collective, from a place of love, that gets us closer to this sense of... Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky because we are we are mammals and we are tribally oriented and one of the self-created koans that I have spent a lot of time with um, I can't remember what year it is when the plane went down on the Hudson River you remember that and everybody that. survived it, it's brace the book was that we wrote was called brace for impact and it was interviews with survivors mm -hmm. so the plane went down it's sitting on the river and it's sinking there are 
two kids in the whole plane. This is mostly a commuter plane to North Carolina. And they're in the back of the plane. The passengers pick the kids up and pass them over their heads so that they're the first yeah. out, the first adults. What is it like to not be so tribal that it's my family first, my community first, my race first, and we start to see um, all life as equal. So my koan, um, as I said, is what would it be like to be in the water after that plane crashed and be able to for sure save two small children and maybe be able to save my grandchild who was way far away? Mm. Sophie's choice. What's it like to be faced with that? In my heart of hearts, the best answer is just save the kids that are right there. Absolutely. Mm. Don't tell my grandkids I said that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that visual. I'm still feeling that, Didi. Thank you. <laughs> you get me crying. Well, this work should make us cry. It should absolutely make us cry. Not angry, sad, scared tears, but letting down the defenses of our identifications. Because boy, what does it mean if we save whoever we save instead of going for, you know, mine, mine, mine. Mm -hmm which is a message that we have been getting for so long, especially in American culture. Um, which I think, you know, American culture and advertising is, is um, so it feels so diametrically opposed to this movement towards human potential and personal growth. Mm. It has felt that way, you know, this, this, it uh, has felt that way. Um, and yet, so much of the growth of the human potential movement took place in the United States. True. We have our summer of love in San Francisco. We have Esalen. We have all of the big places. Maslow, Asajoli came to New York and to Delaware to start his first psychosynthesis work in this country. So it is true that we live in this polarity between what they're trying to sell us and at least a large percentage of us as in that um, research I talked about in my dissertation, but we also know that close to 50% of the people in the United States use complementary medicine and their insurance isn't paying for it. Right. Mm. So we are both um, a country that wants to, us to color within the lines and a country of people who don't for better and for worse necessarily color within the lines. So there's quite a lot of opportunity and, um, 
and has been opportunity for growth and for the human potential movement to expand here. It's very much a, um, the both and in a very geographically large country. Mm. The both and is at play in every moment yes. here. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm tucked away in the middle of Australia at the moment, but having spent a lot of time in the US, I can certainly see what you're saying, Didi, that the, the culture of the US at the moment, probably more than when I first started, maybe more noticeably, pushes the individual to an extreme. Um, but that actually also makes a complete sense for a culture of, well, I mean, I made a note here to ask you about that, actually, um, about the call of self being um, something that comes out of a, a question of interdependence of people needing and actually being involved and engaged together, uh, less so than this, this experience of the individual that we're, that we're often solved. And so it makes a lot of sense that that would take root in America because there's a need for it. Yes. Or in Western culture more generally, but we can say, you know, my experience is that I see the apex of it in the U.S. Without being able to speak to other cultures' experiences um, and only really to be able to speak to mine here, it's the best and the worst of having permission to be individual as opposed to more collectivist cultures where you don't have that permission to be individuals. So with that permission, you know, it's like uh, we can be a country of 13 year olds rebelling against our parents. The goal of having that permission is to be 13 until you're 14 and then keep going till you're adults who find uh, authenticity and personal call of self as a way to be an individual rather than to be reactive, mm. rebellious, or stuck in a, a younger identification or a cult mentality or group mentality or tribe mentality where you just go with a herd. Right. Mm. And then by definition, when you're stuck in that group mentality and going with the herd, there, there inevitably is a them. Mm -hmm. by virtue of there being an us. Yep. And really all there is, is us. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a realization that I feel like we have a huge opportunity right now, not, not only in the United States because of what's happening, you know, on, on the political level and, but worldwide with this pandemic, this pandemic really does give us this, we are all connected. And if in the best possible world, we would get the simple logic of, look, we share this virus worldwide. What else do we share? We share the air, we share the planet, we share the resources. I'm not holding my breath for us to get it in a big way, but hopefully each movement is one movement closer to us getting the big picture. Mm. Hoping and praying for that. (laughs) Hoping and praying for that.
So, Didi, I wonder is what then are you seeing for us to be um, both us generally, us as counsellors, and you personally? What are the what are the ways that we can, particularly as psychosynthesis practitioners, maybe as transpersonal practitioners generally? Um, what is the best way we can move forward? Because we talk about one of the principles of um, psychosynthesis being bifocal vision of seeing the person with their presenting issue and also seeing a, um, a, a person in search of expansion and connecting with their self. It's pretty tough to have that conversation with some people at some points. Um, and also what does that mean that we can do um, in practical terms, just in our own daily lives and our own practices. We can do our psychosynthesis over and over and over again from the first time we take a workshop until we die because it is a never-ending process. And for every identification that we disidentify from, we will find ourselves in another limiting identification. So it is not, um, it is not altogether different than uh, what in Zen they called incremental enlightenment, as opposed to the mythology of, wow, I'm on the top of the Alps, now I'm there. Yeah, right. Guess what? We're going back <laughs> to the city now. <laughs> um, so, for me, there's never an end to the ways that I use the principles of psychosynthesis to keep being more expansive, to aim for um, the great way being easier because of lack of preferences, but not lack of action. So that's one of the interesting things for me is that a quick distortion on the idea of acceptance and bifocal vision, seeing the higher calling, is that we can then become passive and we cannot take a stand about our values. Mm. So how do we hold the both end of that? I have very different values than this person. How do I not see that person as the enemy, but at the same time take a stand? As Esther Jolie said, the apex of which is heroism and utter sacrifice, all based in love. So for me, heroism is finding the deepest core values you have, having cleaned out enough gunk, which means family of origin, culture of origin, religion of origin, politics of origin, advertising of origin, and current day, all of that, so that we can be empty enough that I can say, yes, this is true for me. And now I can stand my ground on this one. I can't even say the word stand my ground. That's a wrong phrase in the United States these days, since it gives you permission to kill people. But hold firm to my values. Absolutely. Strong opinions lightly held. Nice. <laughs> I like that, Craig. <laughs> and Didi, standing firm. Strong opinions, lightly held. Mm. 
And I'm curious also, I was reading an article a few months ago, I think when Black Lives Matter was really, really at the forefront of, of our attention here in this country and, and also in other countries around the world, that um, psychology is not something that has has reached all, all populations and all mm. all persons of color. It was an article, I think, in Psychology Today that was discussing, you know, how many African um, psychologists there are. And, and I'm curious about that, too, in psychosynthesis as a field, uh, how, how expansive we have been up to this point in, in bringing in this work reaching as far and widely as possible and how um, how you see the unfolding of psychosynthesis in in the world how how do we how do we share this work as broadly as possible well another um maybe more important question is how do we as white people allow ourselves or find our way in to other cultures who have their own means of healing and work? And uh, psychology is not a word I'm very attached to. I don't think it's a big answer to a big question. Um, so in this work that I've done with Celia Hilson, it's called Call and Response, a conversation on race, identity, and the act of will. Because in her history as uh, a Black woman, call and response is part of a whole historical spiritual lineage. And so what if it's not that we take what we have to offer anywhere else, but we drop what we have to offer and enter naked into somebody else's world to find out what it's like. Hmm. Thank you for that. That's switch. It's a tough one. Um, there it's a tough one and it's one we need to keep asking as psychosynthesis, how do we make this more inclusive? Right. And um, that's part of how we ask that question. What are we doing that is essentially a missed connection? Mm. Yes. And it's something that, that, that I am, if feeling a strong call on a on a global level for right hearing the voices of of all and i like what you said about coming in naked dropping all of what we know hmm. so that we can fully receive knowledge and experience and wisdom from from all of these people and all of these cultures and all of these places around the world that have so much to share with each other. Yep. It's not altogether different than what we would do in a coaching or a counseling session. We have ideas, we have theories, but we don't in, hopefully 
We don't come in with a pro forma assumption that we're going to do X, Y, and Z with these people. We come in presence, 90% of the work, presence is contentless awareness. We don't have a story. We don't have a story that we're going to make them find their subpersonalities or deal with their father issues or find their divinity. We come in with a question mark. And the more we come in in our work in that same openness and non-attachment, we have a big toolkit in psychosynthesis. We have a lot of skills and we'll bring them out when we need them. But um, I think it was Maslow who constantly used the phrase, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. And we are so much more than a hammer or a nail. <laughs> Absolutely. <sighs> well, we took this to uh, a deep and meaningful places. Yeah, I think we've come to a place where I think we've all got a lot to consider. I feel like we've come to a natural pause, he said, pausing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank you two for doing this. I think it is wonderful. I think it is important. And um, I am honored to be included. No, thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Um, can we, a couple of, just a couple of questions to end, if that's okay, Didi. Absolutely. Um, the work that you're doing with Celia Hilson, where can people find out more about that? Do you have any more workshops coming up or is that something people should just... We don't yet, though. We have one in the works being planned through Synthesis Center San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, so that, yes, and we're happy to do it elsewhere. So if people say come, come, meaning turn on your Zoom, um, we, we can do it in other places. So nothing is on the books now. We will let you know when it is. Uh, it might be interesting to add Celia to your list of people to interview. She is psychosynthesis trained. She's a licensed ma uh, marriage and family counselor at a working at a local college with diversity issues and um, she's brilliant. She's beautiful. I love her dearly. Great. And Wonderful. where else can people find you and your work online? You mentioned you have a, a blog also. There's the, the synthesis center. Where else could, would you like to direct people? If you um, well, you. the blog on psychologytoday.com. Uh, living a life of purpose, which I've been doing, I realized, for more than 10 years, pretty randomly. That's where I get to just, um, you know, spew whatever thoughts I have in the moment. And uh, there's lots of books that I've written. And there's, at Synthesis Center San Francisco, um, the most available resources are What Matters webinars, which are hour long. Craig, you've done one. I just did one on Monday. 
we will have more. I will do more of those. Other people will do more. And those are, um, those are like the appetizers mm -hmm. for the meal of psychosynthesis. Wonderful. And what a meal it is. <laughs> Didi, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today and for teaching us both and so many of us um, about psychosynthesis, which is clearly so dear to your heart. It is dear to my heart. Yeah. We thank you. Thank you both. Namaste. Namaste. Take care of yourselves and uh, take care of our world as we all shall be doing. This podcast is brought to you by Synthesis Center San Francisco. In collaboration with the Synthesis Center Amherst, Massachusetts, we offer professional development and personal growth through psychosynthesis. For more information about our board-certified coach training program, workshops for personal and professional growth, as well as how to work with one of our psychosynthesis-trained coaches, visit us at synthesiscentersf.com. Awaken your purpose. Create your life.